0: Jewish Audio on Kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad of Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Chapter 5 of Masechet Avot of Pirkei Avos is a very, very interesting collection of Mishnayas because usually Mishnayas have a name. They're attributed to a certain teacher. Whereas Chapter 5 is nameless. All of the Mishnayas are not attributed to any specific sage. So being nameless, the Mishnayas are all assigned numbers. Everything in here works with a number. The first group of Mishnayas work with the number ten. The second group of Mishnayas work with the number seven. And the third work with the number four. But the Mishnayas speak about numerology. Various things that are created in specific numbers. There are patterns. Patterns in creation patterns in spirituality, patterns in religious theology, and many of those patterns follow a numerology. So the beginning of the Mishnah talks about Asar, the number 10, which is considered to be a wholesome number or a complete number, as we'll elaborate in a moment. And this Mishnah specifically speaks about creation, the value of creation. That will be the entitlement of today's class, understanding the value and virtue of God's creation. Now, the number 10 is a complete number in mathematics because when you have 10, 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, or you always round off to the nearest 10. And this is based on the Kabbalistic concept that in the divine psyche or persona, there are 10 distinctly different levels. And that those 10 levels are found in every single area or in every dimension of creation. These are called the 10 spherot. And for a deeper understanding of that, please come and join us for the Kabbalah lecture in two weeks. One of the things we're going to talk about is the 10th Sfirot. And try to make that very, very clear to everybody. But what I want you to understand is that the number 10 is not only significant mathematically, but it's significant from a mystical perspective as well. From a Kabbalistic perspective, the number 10 is called Mispaha Hashali. For the wholesome or complete number. So the Mishnah notes that It was with 10 utterances, or 10 distinct activities... But God created the world. Now, how did God create the world? How did God create? Hammer and nails. They use a Bunsen burner. With words. With With words. It says, and God spoke, and things came into being. And God said, there should be light. And there was light. There should be a firmament that separates two waters. And the firmament was created. Now, in, sci- in scientific terms, all of the chemical reactions that scientists surmised took place in the, at the beginning of creation is very, very probably or very possibly accurate. All of the protons and neutrons that divided in a certain way and created certain gases, that's probably exactly how things happen. Now that it has to take 50 billion years for it to happen, who says? We're using today's variables and trying to superimpose that over the time of creation. We're saying that the world as we know it today and the gases as we know them today and all of the various building blocks of reality as we know it today in order for it to develop would take a certain amount of time, assuming that it happened haphazardly and assuming that it just continued one thing after the next in a normative fashion as we know it today. But that doesn't mean it happened that way originally. Things could have happened very, very speedily. Today it takes a long time. So Mount St. Helens is blowing her top off again, right? <laughs> is it, has it exploded I wasn't following? Uh-huh. didn't explode. A okay. small That was a few days ago. But they're expecting a major now eruption of lava again. So let's just use, for example, let's assume that all mountains were created through volcanic eruptions. That the core of the earth is very hot and there was volcanic eruptions and that's what created various mountainous regions or various islands. Let's assume that takes place. So we would know today that if a mountain hell erupts or there's a flow of lava, how long does it take for the explosion to happen? The, 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 and People know, geologists know um, what are they called? Seismologists. Seismologists are able to measure these. I mean, there are people whose profession it is to be able to size these things up, and they can tell you how long it happens, in how long it will happen, and what will the long-term results be, etc. Are those times accurate? Sure they are. For the world in which we live today, those times are 100% absolutely accurate. Mm-hmm. Does it mean that it took that long when Hashem first started to create the world? Absolutely not. Who says? I'm curious about something. If 10 is such a complete number, yeah.
1: why was the world created in 7 days? Why not 10? Excellent question.
0: <laughs> Excellent question. Okay. Very good question. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to it. Thank you for raising it. Then. So when we have a situation, let's say certain mountain regions, scientists make the assumption that billions of years ago, Plates of the earth crashed into each other. And what happens when you have... T- imagine taking two pies of mush and crashing them into each other. What would you have? With an impact, it would be a ridge. Right? So imagine the plates of the earth violently crashed into each other. What would the result be? Mountains. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Does it mean that it takes a million years for this plate to collide with another plate? No. What if Hashem would bring the plates together instantaneously? So maybe that's how mountains were formed. People wonder, what took a whole day? God was talking and talking and talking. He are, it takes a whole day for light to become light. It takes a whole day for mountains to become mountains, a whole day for earth to become earth. The answer is that there wasn't one second when things stopped happening. For a 24-hour period, there was activity that usually takes place in a million years, took place in an incredible burst of activity. Something which is beyond our imagination. And in seven days, the world was formed. What initiated those processes of creation? The answer is divine speech. A divine utterance. It's called asar mamaris. Ten times God uttered something, and an utterance means that something was set into motion. And God oversaw every little detail of it, and seven days later, the result is the world we see today. Now, Hashem doesn't have enough. From the simple understanding of the scripture, that God worked for six days, rested on the seventh, and so we are active for six days and rest on the seventh, logic would dictate, total logic would dictate, that it was 24 hours. And why would it make it any easier for the hour to be 50 hours, or even a thousand years for that matter? Scientists will tell you you need to have billions, 75 billion years. So what's the difference if a day was a thousand years? It's still not enough time. Time is relative. That's Einstein's theory of relativity, which has been articulated by a number of religious scientists in the last few decades. I personally don't feel a need for it. I'm not the biggest scientist, but well, I know a little bit, I, I, I do read a little bit, and from my limited understanding, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible to say that God made things happen in a much, much quicker way. I'm talking, obviously, in very simplistic terms, but it doesn't seem unreasonable to me, assuming that somebody or something is making sure that everything happened in a certain way, because for the world to have developed, there's nothing short of miraculous. What, the more you understand the details of, uh, of science's analysis of the Big Bang and the moments that followed if things would have been slightly different nothing that we see today would have existed. It's impossible. I mean, just, just think about the proximity of Earth and the Sun. If Earth was any closer to the Sun, what would Earth be? Toast. Right? A barbecue gone bad. And if, if Earth was any further from the Sun what would we be? A ball of ice. So that fact that everything happened to be just exactly the way it is, and that all of creation, and I would call it evolved in a perfect manner, says that somebody was orchestrating all of this. It's a lot more logical to say you can toss up a handful of nuts and bolts and end up with a computer after a thousandth or millionth time than it is to think that there was this chemist- chemical soup and eventually just everything just appeared. It's not a reasonable thing to say. It's as unrational or more unrational than faith. So at any rate, why does it say God spoke? Does God have a mouth? Does He have a tongue? Does He have teeth? What what, what is the meaning of God speaking? Speaking is a a human limitation. We need a voice box, and we need the various other tools to be able to speak. So obviously, the speaking cannot be taken in the most literal way. And the Rambam, Imanani, says that whenever the Torah refers to God and gives Him any type of bodily form, that you should realize it's a metaphor. So it says, God stretched out his hand. And it says, God raised up his eyes. Or it says, God's nostrils flared with anger. It's all a metaphor. The Torah speaks, B'lashon Adam. the Torah speaks in human terminology. Because if the Torah wouldn't speak in human terminology, we would have no way of understanding. So just, let's give a bad example. If you had to go next door, not to the nursery class, and explain to them what you just did here, what would you say? You would try to find the language that the children are used to. Say, remember you learned a song about Russia last week? And the kids would say, yeah. Well, that's what mommy was doing next door. Oh, okay. So you were singing? Well, whatever. We were learning. In the child's mind, learning, singing and playing is learning. So if you told the child you were singing and playing, the child would have an understanding of what you did it for an hour. Is it accurate? Somewhat accurate. We were learning. And they were learning. Now imagine, it wasn't that long ago that we were sitting in nursery class. Right? Some little, of a little longer, a little shorter. But in, relatively speaking, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. And and we aren't really that different. The needs of small children and the needs of adults are not worlds apart. Everybody needs to eat. Everybody wants friends. Nobody likes to share. We're all in the same boat. It's just uh, sometimes that they have small children need little toys, and big children need big toys. So as a child, you buy a fire truck and it costs $9. And uh, your husband needs to buy a car, it costs $90,000 to make him happy. Okay, that's, uh, everybody has their shtick. So little toys are big toys, but the toys are toys. And people are people. So if the children and us are not that far apart, and yet we use different terminology, imagine then, how would we be able to understand God? It's, it's like a, a futile task. It's ridiculous even to try so therefore the Torah uses human terminology and we need to have enough Seichel to understand that the terminology the Torah is using is very, very far removed from actual reality or from divine reality. But we don't understand divine reality. We have no point of reference. And therefore we do the best we can. And this is a basic premise in and Hashem gave us Seichel, gave us intelligence. And our job is to try to understand to the best of our ability. And that goes for everybody. Everybody has to understand to the best of their ability. And even if somebody's not an Einstein, or he's not a Vilni Ghosn, and he's not going to know everything and understand everything, it doesn't mean they say, well, I believe in God. That's enough for me. Everybody has to try to study. And everybody has to try to understand to the best of their own ability. Because you have to serve Hashem according to your ability, nobody else's. So when God spoke, it's a metaphor. And we use the word speak because speaking is something that we do also. What is speaking? Let's analyze. What what happens when we speak? What happens? You communicate. So there was something that was in my head or in my heart. And now once I said it, I'm sharing it. Imagine if we had a little screen on our forehead. And everything that we would think would be played out. Terrible. Terrible. Terrible, huh? You would wear a big hat. Huh? Everybody would wear a big will down to here. <laughs> because there's lots of things that we think that we don't want anybody else to know what we're thinking. And there's lots of things that we want to say sometimes when we bite our lip real hard, if we're smart, and we don't say them. And sometimes you say it and it's, it wasn't a very good idea. Huh? Too late. Once the words are out, too late. You can't take those words back. So words are a vehicle for communication. The truth is that a word is lifeless. What's a word? Take any word in any language. It's a lifeless word. It has only as much meaning as you intend it to have. So if somebody says the word love, what does love mean? It depends. Love could have an infinite amount of meanings. When somebody says, I love you, you like to think that you understand what they're saying because you know what it means to love somebody. So somebody says, I love you, you say, I love you. And you're understanding when somebody says the word love, what are you, what are you hearing? You're not hearing? You're not hearing what they're saying. You're hearing what you're, what you're listening to. That's the way it is. We have no other way of doing that. Nobody can really get into somebody else's mind. It's just that love is an experience that all of us have, Baruch Hashem. So since it's a common experience, as a point of reference, so we all understand something about love. And the more passionate somebody is and the more somebody says something with more fervor, the more we try to imagine what they might mean. But when people use words and they mean something else, we get into trouble. A very interesting phenomenon happens in the English-speaking world. They speak English in South Africa, they speak English in Australia, they speak English English in Great Britain, they speak English in Canada, they speak English in the United States. Not all the words mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people use the same word, Mm -hmm. and it means something else. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine told me when he first came to Australia, so every time he did something, he says, Oh, sorry, it's it's nothing. He would say, thank you. Oh, sorry, it's nothing. I was like, what is this sorry, it's nothing? What did I do wrong? What do you mean it's nothing? It took them a couple of weeks to figure it out. So all people are saying it. That's how they say, you're welcome. <laughs> 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 or or uh, like South Africans always say, shame, shame, right? <laughs> First of all, what is shame? What do they want to What's so shameful? Oh, shame, shame. What's <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? Who's South African over here? <laughs> oh, dear, right? Okay. Now, in English, shame means shame on you. That's what shame means. Now, English is common enough for us usually to figure out what somebody wants, most of the time, right? Most of the time we figure it out. Well, you pick it up after the first three times, you realize they're not trying to say shame on you, so you figure it out. But the point is that words are only as meaningful as they're meant to be, or as meaningful as they're understood. So, words are a vehicle for communication. Words are lifeless. Alphabet soup doesn't say anything. But a book that's full of alphabets does say something. Why? Because the words are arranged in a certain way. And if you don't understand the language, it looks like alphabet soup. You ever opened a book, if you don't, a foreign language, even if it's all in English, you look at it, it's about as meaningful as alphabets. It's just letters. It doesn't mean anything to you. So word is a way, words are the vehicle, the method through which we communicate to others. So God wants to create a world. For who is the world created? Or for who does creation make a difference? For us. God creates a world for us. God doesn't need a world to be created. It doesn't really make a difference to God after creation, before creation. So God arranges things in a certain way so that we should be able to appreciate, so that we should be able to exist. So what's the human metaphor? But God created us. This is true. He spoke us and He spoke the things for us. You're asking, so why did you bother creating the world altogether? Yeah, I mean, we were not there. We didn't need to create I'll tell you a little secret. There really isn't an answer to that question. Mm. I'm doing well today. <laughs> the, an- <laughs> the answer to that question is, somebody asked, the Alt-Rebbe used to say, so why is the world created? Because Nisava, the, the expression is Nisava, Akkadosh Baruch Hu, God had a title. Paiva literally is translated as a luster, or desire. God had a desire so to be a dwelling place for God in the lower worlds. That there'd be somebody else that appreciates God. So why did God need that? Why did God desire that? And the answer is, whoever asked the question, ask them back. How come you desire certain things? You like ice cream. Why do you like ice cream? You like hot chicken soup. Why do you like hot chicken soup? Because it hits the spot. Why does it hit the spot? I don't know. It just does. Nobody can really explain why he or she likes certain things. You don't really know why you have a desire for certain things. It's something which is rooted very, very deep in our psyche. Even Freud couldn't understand why people like certain things. Try try to understand why certain people like strange things. And he attributed it to early childhood experiences. But at, at a certain level, every single human has basic needs that have nothing to do with what happened to us. And we don't know why we like these things or why we want these things or why different people have different desires. And some people like it hot and some people like it cold. And it's not always because the mother dressed them in 18 sweaters when they were a baby or because they were left out freezing before the doctor wrapped them up to be born. It's not always because of an early childhood experience. There are certain things that are natural. It's just hereditary or genetic. Why is that? We don't really know why. That's called the subconsciousness. So you don't understand your own subconsciousness. You want to psychoanalyze God? We don't know. We don't really understand. But the only problem with that is we are limited creatures and God is limitless. So we are created in a limited manner. The only way for us to experience the joy of children is with children. But God has no limitations. God is infinite. So all the answers that are possible, and there are many answers like that, but all those answers ultimately, they hit a brick wall. So Adam was a man and Chava was a woman. And not vice versa. That's finity. Each one has its own definition. So every human being has definition. Every human being has their limits. And because we have our limits, all the reasons and explanations of God and uh, and the parent and and all those beautiful ideas ultimately are empty or lacking because God doesn't have those limitations. Or God needs us to do something. Why does God need us to do something? Ultimately, we say we don't really know why. God placed himself into that kind of situation Mm -hmm. where where he needs our Shabbos or he needs our Luluvaneser or he needs our Matzah. Why? We don't know why. But we don't necessarily have to know why. We don't necessarily have to know the answers to everything. The, the theology of Judaism makes sense. It doesn't make empirical sense. It's not something we would decipher or figure out on our own. It makes sense that if we were placed there, we're placed for a reason, and there's a purpose to creation, and a purpose for us existing, and Judaism has many answers to those questions. Now, the deeper question is so, so why did God need all those mm-hmm. things? We don't know why. That's called God had a tayva, He had a desire. And that's why he created us. And that's why we're here. And our job is to fulfill God's desire. Plain and simple. (coughs) Getting back now to our point of speech. When God creates a world, God is articulating, metaphorically, or revealing something that was hidden so that it should be out in the open. That it should become actualized. Which is the meaning of creation. Creation, which is called the Latin ex nihilo. Something from nothing. There's a certain point where all of a sudden physicality began. Whether it was the most refined type of physicality, it was just gas, or just an atom. But an atom had to come from somewhere. And that came from a certain point when God said, is like Now, interestingly, if you look at the Chumash and you count up in the beginning of Genesis the word Vayomer, Vayomer Elikim, and God said, How many times will it say the word Vayomer? Nine times. Nine, not ten. So the Bartanura says that the words Bharatish Bara is also symbolic of a minor. In the beginning God created that's also the idea of some type of articulation. That's what scientists will call the Big Bang. It's very important to us to understand that the Big Bang Theory is not untenable at all. It's very likely that something like the Big Bang happened. All we're saying is that it was by divine design. Or God triggered all of these reactions. And it didn't necessarily happen in the amount of time that scientists would assume it to be based on the information we have today. But that there was some type of chemical reaction at some point, yes. The question is, where did that start from? So Somebody believes the world came from nowhere. So there was a Big Bang. And what caused the Big Bang? Gases. And what caused the gases? Something had to start from somewhere. And since something had to start start from somewhere, that's what we're saying, is the meaning of the words, Now, the question is, forget seven days. Why did God have to say ten times Vagamer? Why did God have to articulate, or God have to set in motion, creation ten different times? If all of creation was set in motion, with Barathe's Buddha, why couldn't we just have Barathe's Buddha? And then there's an endless amount of divinely designed evolution that eventually gave way to a world as we know it. When I say evolution, I don't mean that fish turn into monkeys or turn into people. I say evolution meaning that the, the chain reaction as, as everything developed, you know. An estrog also evolves. You know what an estrog starts out as? See this little thing on top? That's what the estrog starts out as. And the estrog, the pitum, ends up on the end and the estrog kind of fills in from the bottom. Some estrog, this thing falls off and it's still kosher. Why? Because if it breaks off, it's not kosher. But what happens is sometimes as the fruit begins to expand, the the equivalent to capillaries or veins, meaning that which uh, pulls vitality into the entire fruit, somehow doesn't make it to the top. So what happens is that this eventually shrivels up and falls off. An esteric that has a pit, that means it's a strong esteric. that it had the strength to be able to grow properly. But everything started something This was a flower. That's not what scientists say. When Darwin talks about evolution. He doesn't talk about the evolution of a flower into an esteric or into into an apple. When we talk about evolution, that's what we're talking about, the process of evolving. The butterfly that evolves from a caterpillar. So why did God have to initiate a process ten times? He could have initiated the process once, but Elisha's brother, in the beginning God created, and then the world continued to evolve and create into the world as we know it, six days later. So the Mishnah says, obviously there was a purpose to that. God could have created the world with one maimer. He could have set it into motion once. eloh rather, the reason for that is that <laughs> Hashem this way is able to take revenge. <laughs> So God takes revenge on the, shayim, on the wicked who destroy the world which was created through Ten Members. Abdul Isa'ilam, the wicked destroy the world. Who says the wicked? Osama bin Laden destroys the world. Saddam Hussein destroys the world. Every person who's wicked, a lousy neighbor of yours who yells and screams and can't be polite destroys the world. But they do wrong. I mean, just because you don't like them doesn't mean they destroyed the world. So the Bartanuri says, anybody who causes a soul to become lost or to cease to exist it's as if he destroyed a whole world we you know that however anybody who saves a soul is as if they save a whole world and every single soul is a whole story it's a whole as they say so in that sense somebody who loses or causes an Meshama to become lost it's as if they lost the whole world the harashayim the wicked lose the, their own souls or cause their souls to die with their sins and therefore it's ki'ilu abdin It's it says if they destroy the world and the bactador says this is what i found written for my predecessors but he says i believe that it goes further shaba' al-abdin Mamash that they actually cause the world to be destroyed shabkhri miskalailam kubu bi they bring the world to a state of the opposite of merits, to a state of demerit, where the world is lacking, where the world is missing, the world, something is wrong. The nim mm-hmm. bishvilam. the world becomes lost as a result of wicked people. What does this mean? Now during the festival of Sukkot, which we are celebrating today, they used to bring many sacrifices in the base of In fact, each day of Sukkot had different sacrifices. This is the only holiday like that. On Pesach, it was the same thing. It was a routine. But on Sukkot, each and every single day, there was a different number of sacrifices, which actually is relevant for us today because in our davening, in the morning, we say the entire halal. You know, the halal prayer, Song of Thanksgiving. Usually during Chol during the weekday, we don't say the whole halal. We skip out two paragraphs. The reason is because it's not really a chag. It's quasi-chag. It's like a holiday, but not really a holiday. However, on Sukkot we say the whole hollow throughout. Why? So, on Shukranach it says, because there were new sacrifices every day. Each day was like a separate holiday. And why do we bring so many sacrifices? If you'll sit down and painstakingly count the number of sacrifices, you'll see that the sum total is seventy. What's the number seventy? Sanhedrin seventy-one. Uma olam, the nations of the world that there are 70 nations of the world. There are seven different segments, 70 different groups amongst the world's population. Is it a fact? It really depends how you divide it up. Is, is Taiwan different than China? Or is mainland China, uh, the southern mainland, different from the northern mainland? And so on and so forth. Because the League of Nations decided to chop up Europe in a certain way, it doesn't mean that they're really different nations. So the 70 nations that the Torah identifies were actually aided and assisted to the Beit HaMikdash. Every single one of those sacrifices corresponded to a different nation. And the result of it was that the world was a peaceful place. So even things like Mount St. Helm didn't erupt during the time when the Beit HaMikdash stood. Why? Because the world was protected. You know that things like this can go one way or the other. Why were there so many hurricanes this year? I looked into it a lot. i was curious. What causes a hurricane? There's no way for us to predict They have this incredible computer system that <laughs> tracks all the hurricanes coming out of that area of the world. But really, it's cold air rises or hot air rises and meets with cold air and that creates like a cyclone type of, of um, reaction. And that storm just gathers strength. And, and it keeps gathering strength until eventually it becomes spent. <laughs> It's almost like atomic energy or the energy dissipates. And it doesn't disappear, but it takes on a new form. So why do some hurricanes come with a number five and others come with a number one? Why do some just dump a lot of rain and others tear roofs off houses? Nobody really knows. Nobody understands why sometimes the chemical reaction is more intense and sometimes it's mild. There's no way to predict it. There's no way to change it. Scientists don't know. They call it freak of nature just happens that way. It's the same exact things that cause hurricanes each and every year. Some years are more, some years are less. So the reason is probably a thousand little variables or ten thousand little variables, many of which it's impossible for us to prevent. What do you call Nature takes its course. Now, nature is a nice code name for God. So in the same way the hurricane could develop into a force-five hurricane and batter Miami Beach or destroy Haiti, the same way the hurricane could also go out into... The ocean, dump it in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's in the Bermuda Triangle, it's perfect. Just dump everything over there and finished. Mm-hmm. So, the fact that things happen that way is because we believe Hashem is orchestrating everything. When the Beis Amigdash stood and sacrifices were brought, the world was a more peaceful place. The world was protected. And from the time that the Beis Amigdash was destroyed, there has never ever been peace in the world. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. For 2,000 years there has never been peace in the world. There was. Uh, maybe a lack of, of wars, a major war since World War II, but it was a Cold War. And even in, for North Americans, the Korean War, a Vietnam War, and various other wars going on in the world, there's always something going on somewhere. There are war-torn regions everywhere in the world today. And very interestingly, the Prophet says, For the sake of Jerusalem, I shall not be silent. And whenever it says that whenever there's trouble in Jerusalem, when the Jewish people are molested in Jerusalem, then Hashem says, I'll make sure that there's trouble elsewhere. And if you follow the progression, whenever there's trouble in Yerushalayim or in Eretz Yisrael, automatically there's more trouble elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. So, the 70 nations receive protection through our sacrifices. Which means that spirituality can actually result in a physical difference in the world. The world can physically be a safer... Or a more productive place. Or Chas the opposite. What contributes toward this? So we, as Jewish people who believe in spirituality, will say, the amount of mitzvahs done makes a difference. And the amount of sin done makes a difference. So somebody comes along and he says, what do you care about my same-sex marriage? You don't want to call it marriage, don't call it marriage. Why do you say it's a sin? Two adults, we consent, we know what we're doing, it's our life. What is so? So I'll go to hell, he says. So what do you care? What's your business? Why do you care if I'm getting rights? Why do you care if this becomes popular? You don't want to do it, don't do it yourself. The answer is because we believe that everybody affects everybody else. And that sinful behavior ultimately affects us. Besides the fact that if you make it popular and you make it easy for people, people get all kinds of nourishkeit in their head. And with all the education you're giving the children, people who have no propensity or, no, or uh, no direction in any particular thing like that, all of a sudden, find are drawn that way because, uh, you know, I, mu- I got to fight with six girls. I must be gay. Okay, it has to be. It's some no kind of nourish like that. So the reality is, though, we believe that sin brings about an evil energy or a negative energy in the world. Full stop. So therefore, sin is something we try to minimize. And then mitzvahs bring about something good, so mitzvahs is something that we try to increase. The Torah says that that the little children singing makes a difference in the world. How does it make a difference? A bunch of little kids, what difference does it make? If they sing or London Bridge is falling down, what difference does it make? The kids are happy, the main thing is kids are happy. No, we believe it does make a difference. And that there's a certain spirituality that's created by small children davening. So much so, that when Mashiach will come and the Beis Migrash will be built, so it says we might have to go and build. Everybody might have to get involved. We're not sure exactly how much is coming from heaven. So if we need to get involved, it says that teachers will be taken out of yeshiva and we stop all the Torah learning, except for the small little children. The small little children keep studying Torah. Because the value of their Torah exceeds everybody else's Torah study. Which ostensibly makes no sense. On a university level Torah study, so this is real study that makes a difference. They're doing research, and they're dealing with real issues, or they're creating tomorrow's rabbis, or tomorrow's rabbisins. This is this study actually is going to make a difference. If a small child sings Moda Ani, it's going to make a difference to anybody. Okay. So, but the, the point is, though, it's not only because of what it will bring, because of what it is now. the Aml says, in b'ti that the Yankee the to and the mouths of babes come our strength." The exact opposite of strength. When you think of military, might, what do you think of? Nursery school? <laughs> no. in, in, in Gaza, that's what they think of. They dress little kids up in, in, their, in bombs. But normal people, even the most militarized society, never dressed up children in bombs. Even the Nazis didn't put little children into army uniforms. Little kids, 10 years old, yes. Not little babies. This, this depravement that we see in the Arab world is something, it's like, I don't even know what to heard of. Something, I, I don't know if the world has ever seen this kind of moral depravity. Children have always been innocent. And Reuters will call them freedom fighters. Or insurgents. Or rebels. Or guerrillas. But never the word terrorist. You know there's a big, huge fight going on. Between Reuters and Ken West. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. You have somebody that will blow up little children. And I was afraid to call it. You know. so, so we're living in a, in a sick, depraved world. Where, where children all of a sudden have become objects of war. Both victims as well as perpetrators. I don't know if you remember seeing two years ago, they, they found a, an album of a Palestinian family that dressed up a little child. You know, you go to Sears and take pictures. They dressed up a baby in a suicide suit. I mean, the, 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 the depravity is just, it's oh, unbelievable. Insane. So children are the most innocent type of thing. And children always, are try, we try to keep them out of this, type of this type of situation. So children are the opposite of strength, military might. Nobody says my military might is my little children. But Arafat says that. Because the military might is our children will blow themselves up. And the traitor says, From the mouth of babes. We get strength. What does that mean? So it's not a logical thing. It's not a rational thing. That's something we believe in. That when little children sit and say Sukum of Torah, that it gives us strength. What did Mordechai do when there was a great decree against the Jewish people? He gathered 24,000 children. He didn't gather students, he didn't gather rabbis, he didn't gather rabbis, he gathered small children. And he studied with them Torah that had nothing to do with what they were talking about. He studied laws about the Beis HaMegdash. And it's, and it's written that those 24,000 students with small children that studied Torah with Mordechai, that made all the difference. So we obviously believe in the power of good deeds, in the power of spirituality. And the more innocent the deed is, which children of pure and innocent, the more powerful it is. So the Rasha, Imam Abdul al-Minsalilah, says, I think this is a way to understand it, that a Rasha, a person who behaves in a wicked way, actually brings destruction about in the world. And the more people behave in a depraved or immoral fashion, the more evil is in the world. The more bad things happen to the world, the more the world will be destroyed. Which doesn't only or necessarily mean that it's a punishment, a tit-for-tat. You did this immoral, now something bad is going to happen. But rather it means that we are unable to access the maximum optimal situation. An example. The Rebbe once was asked about a, a, a terrible story in Israel where a, a school was targeted by terrorists. Terrorists, they attacked the school. This is 25 years ago. High school. High school. And 18 children died in northern Israel. So the Rebbe, somebody wrote a letter to the Rebbe about it. And the Rebbe responded, checked in with scissors. And they checked the mezuzahs in the school and of all the doors, 18 of the mezuzahs were not kosher. So, the Rebbe, they wrote back to the Rebbe, everybody was you know, horrified. The Rebbe said, the chas we should think that it was a punishment because the mezuzahs weren't kosher. That's why people died. Chas But, the Rebbe said, the mashal, the metaphor would be, if a soldier goes out to battle without wearing a helmet. An enemy fire hits him in the head. What happens? Chaman al-San, person loses life. Who killed him? The helmet killed him. The enemy killed him. Had he had protection, though, he might have escaped. Mm-hmm. So the Rebbe said the mezuzah is protection. And had the protection been there in place, who knows, the, the circumstances could have been different. Maybe the attack could have been thwarted. Maybe those people could have, could have tripped. We don't, we don't know what could have happened. In other words, never should we, should we think or say that uh, a, a hurricane or an earthquake or, or any time people suffer, ah, God's getting back. These people did this, and so now God's getting back. But the way to look at it is that it's a natural consequence. Would you say that somebody who, who, who uh, eats very, very un- unhealthy foods and never exercises and is stressed out of his head, and then he gets a heart attack, Say, so, well, God punished you. He punished you for eating lousy food. All those hamburgers, huh, now you get ridiculous. What caused the heart attack, though? you say all the cholesterol, all the bad food, and so on and so forth. That's what caused the heart attack. Who do you blame? You can't really blame anybody. blame yourself. Sometimes it's not somebody's fault. Sometimes it can be a predisposition. People don't know. The point, though, is that we understand in the, in the flesh, in the physical, that negative behavior can breed negative results. Everybody understands it. So, whether it's stress or high sodium or high cholesterol or lack of, of, of oxygen or, or, or too much smoking, whatever it may be, we understand that certain things can bring a negative consequence. It's not a punishment. It's, it's a natural evolution. Things just go that way. One thing, there's always a chain reaction. Everything in the world has a follow-up. Nothing happens in isolation. So saying, having said that, the same thing can be understood in the spiritual realm as well. When there's a lot of negativity in the world, it takes protection away from the world. It takes God's protection away. Or it opens the door for destruction. It opens the door for bad things. So the Russia, the person who lives a wicked, libertine lifestyle, we could talk about a person who is very kind to his fellow human but violates every other command of morality that the Torah speaks about. Is that person called a rasha? Very nice, very nice neighbor, very fine. But they violate everything else. Is that wicked? Yes, to a degree it is wicked. But the Torah says these things are bad. Are those activities good or bad? They're bad. The Torah says they're bad. Could they have negative results? Sure they could. If you believe that spirituality is real, not just some cute little tradition thing, of course it could have a negative result. And that's what the Bartonur says, it's my in asylum. Number one, they destroy their own soul, that's a given. So if somebody doesn't nourish the soul, the soul starves. Or if somebody feeds the soul toxins and poison, that the soul is going to be irreparably damaged. But furthermore, the Bartonur takes it a step further, he says it's not only a question of damaging the, your own soul, which is an olam, by the way, which is a whole world in and of itself. But furthermore, that can actually bring negative results in the whole world. So when somebody says, "Why do you care if I made a bracha on the lulav and Esther today? Why do you care if I eat kosher? Why do you care if I put on film? Why are you trying to encourage me to light Shabbat candles?" I say a very simple thing: If I saw you smoking and I knew I could influence you to stop smoking, would I try to? Yeah. Why do I care about you? Why should you kill yourself? If you saw somebody eating poison, you say, "You are eating poison, it's not healthy. It's not good for you." Person doesn't want to listen. What can you do? You can't force people. But you can suggest, If you care about them, you're going to suggest. You care about them. You beg, you cajole. Will you be successful? Always no. So when your mother bothered you about this habit or the other bad habit, or she didn't like you. She loved you. When you make your kids sugar, what do you do it for? Because you care about them. You care. If you wouldn't care about them, you wouldn't do it. I have memories of my mother driving me nuts to put on a sweater and now I find myself doing the same thing to my kids. I go, oh my God, how did this happen? <laughs> what does she need me to wear a sweater for? What do I need my kids. I worry about them. A normal parent worries about children. A normal parent wants children to be healthy. And a normal person knows that if you go out and it gets very cold and there's weather, it changes the weather, and if you're not protected from the elements, it lowers resistance. You pick up germs easily, you get sick. So everybody understands that when it would come to something physical, they wouldn't be considered a stranger or a weirdo for trying to influence somebody else to do the right thing. They say, well, belief is it's your faith, it's my belief that we have to be liberal and everybody believes their own thing. I believe that going out uh, and, and getting in contact with germs is good for you. Says, well, I'm sorry, I don't believe that. Well, I, I believe it is. Not everything is clear-cut or proven in scientific journals, but if you're convinced of a certain thing, you would try to help somebody. Our faith and our should be unshakable. It's not a maybe. I think I believe in God. He might be real. Well, in the mitzvahs, they could be. So since I think it could be, maybe you should do it also. No, I really believe it. I really believe it makes a difference. Take these branches together and this fruit to hold it together today makes a difference. And next week, make absolutely no difference. So since I believe that, if I'm only a half normal person and I have a little bit of a heart to care for somebody else, why shouldn't I encourage them to pick it up? Such an easy mitzvah. So easy to do. Why shouldn't I encourage it? It's natural. It's normal. Obviously, you don't want to become a pain in the neck. But, but you want to become the, you know, the, everybody's mother also, but everybody to put in a sweater? Also not. So there's obviously that fine balance between being a nudge or, or, or driving people crazy or just being kind, friendly, and sharing. But the point will be that when somebody sins, they destroy their own soul. And the bhaktanuri takes that further, not only their own soul, but when you breathe negative energy in the world, ultimately it breeds negativity around you. So if more Shabbat candles are lit, there's more light, there's more of a chance for peace in the world. Fact. Whose fact? Our fact. That's what we believe and if Shabbos candles are put out, there's less light in the world. There's less light, and that's in your hands. And you could make the difference. You could do it yourself. You could encourage other people to do it. Imagine if you got one person a month. Do the math. Mm-hmm. You got one person to light Shabbat candles. Thirty days. You could work in thirty days on one person. Twelve people a year. Twenty-four people two years. Just do the math. Think how many people in a lifetime. How much more light you could add into the world. Candle once a month. One every two months. Five a year. Six a year. But these are the way, we have to, the way we have to think. We have to think about this in terms of reality, that it's real and it makes a difference. And if we can get more people to do more good things, it makes a difference in the world. And that's why the world's created with Teman Maris. Because, says the Bartanura, if the world was something that didn't have much effort put into it, would anybody really care if it was destroyed? No, you didn't put effort into it. The more effort you put into something, the more you care about it. Something that came to you easily means nothing. I used to doodle and make drawings. My friends used to keep them. I said, what are you keeping these stupid drawings for? I said, because it's nice. I said, it takes two seconds. I'll make another one. doesn't mean anything. But the one time when I did spend a few hours making something, all of a sudden, they wanted somebody to tear it up. Mm-hmm. It took me a few hours. So, who says it looked any better? It's not the point. It's not what it looks like. It's the amount of effort that went into it. The more effort you put into something, the more you care about it. The more valuable it becomes. Why are hand-painted things more expensive? They're nicer. Time. It's not, not necessarily any better. Who says it looks better? I have little glasses that my great-grandmother gave me when Faye and I got married. She got them for her wedding. She, was, she got married at 15. She died a few years ago at the age of 102. And they were old when she got them. So there's this, I have these three glasses left from a set of six. And they have little grapes cut into them. Hand-cut, hand-blown, hand-cut. And they're all like slightly different sizes. They happen to be very light, they're very unique. But let's say somebody can make that from a machine, and it wouldn't be 125 years old, and all the circles would be exactly the same. Would it have the same value? No, why not? Because somebody actually sat there blowing glass and cutting out grapes. Mm-hmm. Who cares? We do care. We, 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 everybody understands that. That something that's handmade, or something that has a great deal of effort goes into it, all of a sudden it's, meaningful, it's more meaningful, it's more valuable. Same idea, I God personally initiated ten of those changes. Instead of initiating once and then guiding along step by step, God initiated it ten times. Why? The world's more valuable now. And those who destroy the world are more liable, because they destroy something of greater value. The leaping, it also has a positive connotation, because everything that's negative has a flip side of the positive. If something is... Very valuable. And because it's very valuable, the one that destroyed that is a villain or a criminal. They destroyed something very valuable. So how about the person that saved it? So God forbid there's a fire or a flood or a hurricane and somebody went and saved something for you. And that was something that was very valuable to you. Because you spent years and years working on it. How grateful would you be? Very. Much more grateful than if they would save something that took a short time to do. A labor of a lifetime is infinitely more valuable than a labor of a half hour. And so the world was created by asara ma'maris because the fact that it was created with ten ma'maris, or ten utterances, or God's personal involvement that was so much greater means the world is more valuable. And so tzaddikim, shemekayim in esayilam, tzaddikim that saved the world or sustained the world, which was nivra, ba'asara ma'maris, that was created with ten utterances are that much more valuable. So because the world is more valuable, because the world had a greater divine investment, that's why Russia is more wicked and that Tzaddik is more righteous. Essentially what God has done is He raised the value of creation. And by virtue of raising the value of creation, He raises the value of our deeds. Our lives are more meaningful because they lived in a world that is more valuable. Our deeds are more virtuous because the world is something that has more of God's involvement. And our sins or our negative impact is that much worse because we're ruining something that God put so much energy into, or so much effort into. And that is the essence of the concept of God's involvement. Now what we did not answer today is, why 10, the dichotomy of 7? And I'll leave you with one more question. Why is it that we speak about a world that was created in such a valuable way so that the Rishayim should be punished? It sounds kind of vindictive, doesn't it? God would make a world more valuable just to punish people? It doesn't sound like God. It doesn't sound like the Creator that we worship. So, Mirza Hashem, we'll be back not next Monday, but in two Mondays, God willing, because it's Thanksgiving. And we're going to pick up uh, again with this Mishnah and take a deeper analysis, deeper look at it.